Um, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 15. And uh, somebody who has access to the furnace, if you felt like turning off the furnace right now, you could do that. Um, as the Spirit leads. A- Acts 15. So, Acts 15. As you're turning there in your Bible, um, I'd, I can't actually overstate today how important this passage is it, for not just the book of Acts, but for uh, the Christian life. Um, this passage right here represents not just the center of the book of Acts uh, physically, like this is at the center of the book, but also theologically. This is, everything's coming to a head right here. This passage represents the, the most monumental meeting in the early church, and it's a meeting that has ripple effects that lead to this room today. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the meeting we're about to read in, Acts 15. So this is hugely important, and in order to see how important it is, we need to remember how we got here. And so if you've been tracking through the book of Acts, you know that Jesus gave his apostles an assignment. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is telling his his believers, he says, we are now going out. This isn't just a Jewish movement, this is going out to the nations, And so for the last 15 chapters, we've been watching as the gospel has broken all of these boundaries, these physical boundaries, these cultural boundaries, and now we've got this group that was 300 Jewish believers in Jesus hiding in an upper room. That's where we found them. Now this has moved to the most diverse movement in the Mediterranean world. And Jews and Greeks and barbarians and Scythians and slaves and free and men and women, they're all worshiping together, glorifying Jesus. And it's amazing. And it's everything that Jesus said would happen. And we come to discover it's, it's wildly complicated, actually. And it leads to significant chaos. And the church is about to, see, that's nice, right? The church, the church is about to rupture. And this meeting right here is really the meeting where a church that's you know, looking for all the world like it's going to break into two is bound together. So this is monumental. It's, it's huge. It's also a large passage. We're reading almost all of chapter 15. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to break it into sections. Uh, we're going to break this into the three parts of the story. We'll consider them as we go. Uh, and then we're going to draw out implications for today when we come to the conclusion. So that's, that's the roadmap if you want to track along. And we begin in, in verses 1 to 2. So look now to God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. In verses one to two, we find the dissension. is the first element of the story. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, so we'll pause here and just make sure we're understanding what's happening. So if you remember, the the context of this story is that Paul and Barnabas have just come back to Antioch from where? What, What were they just doing? Their first missionary journey. That's right. So they've been going out and they've been preaching the gospel to these Gentile people groups and and everybody's getting saved and it's glorious. And so now they've come back to Antioch. They're giving this report to the church and everybody's just celebrating and excited. But we come to discover here in chapter 15 that there's another report that's being given in Antioch. That, That some of the believers from Jerusalem have made their way up to Antioch and they're gathering people together and they're saying, listen, this isn't real salvation. This isn't real. The things you're celebrating, it doesn't count until somebody 
is circumcised, until they come under the law of Moses, they can't actually be saved. In verse five, we get a bit more clarity about their argument. Verse five says, some believers, so these are Christians, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, former Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here we have these dissenters, and we get a better idea of who they are. They're believers who used to be Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees from the Gospels? Uh, this, the Pharisees gave Jesus a lot of grief. Um, it, was, um, it was a section of Judaism that was really passionate about keeping the law, so passionate, in fact, that they added extra laws on top of the law to make sure you didn't even get close to breaking the law. So if the law was, you know, don't touch the stove, they made a law that said, don't even go into the kitchen. Right? There is no law about not touching the stove. But that's the idea. Because we don't want to touch the stove at all, so let's not even risk it. Let's just stay out, let's stay out of the building. That was the way that they thought. So these are people who are building laws upon laws. They love laws. They love fences. They love control. That's the movement that they've been saved out of. Now they love Jesus, but they're bringing all of that old thinking with them. And they're looking at this Gentile church and they're very concerned because they're wondering, who's teaching these guys about the fences? Is anybody, who's, who here is interviewing? Did you make sure that they're circumcised? Did you make sure that they know about the dietary laws? No, this isn't real. Quit your celebrations. Be careful here. That's what's happening in Antioch. And you can realize how that would be wildly complicated. Over here, you're celebrating that these people have been included. Over here, you're warning that this isn't the real thing. And conflict was bound to happen. And conflict did happen. In fact, not only was this conflict happening in the city, this conflict was happening within even the leadership. So the Apostle Paul, at one point, he has to rebuke Peter. If uh, you're familiar at all with the New Testament and the book of Galatians, you remember there's a conflict that we read about in Galatians. Well, that conflict roots back to this conflict here in Acts 15. That Galatians 2 describes kind of the events that led to the Jerusalem Council. And so let me just read a little section from Galatians 2. It uses the name Cephas, and Cephas is another name for Peter. So when you read Cephas, that's Peter. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas, this is Paul's missionary partner, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's the issue here, this is a gospel issue, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you then force these Gentiles to live like Jews? So, I hope you're tracking with me. If, you have, if you've lost it here, don't worry, we're gonna get back. This is, a, this is a massive issue. This is a gospel issue. That's what Paul is saying. Because at the root of this objection, these, these guys who've come from Jerusalem, at the root of their objection, what they're saying is, if you want to come to Jesus, you must first become a Jew. It, the road to Jesus, has to, it passes through Moses. And this made complete sense to them. Because, of course, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the king in the line of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. And so for them, they're thinking, well, obviously then, 
to, in order to come to him, salvation comes through Christ, you must first pass through Judaism. You must be a Jew in order to come to Jesus. And, and Peter, who used to be clear on this, when these guys came in and they started making their compelling arguments, suddenly Peter, he's sitting at a different table because he doesn't want this group judging him. And even Barnabas, it says, even Barnabas fell under their influence. Can I just remind you of something? Barnabas was on this missionary trip with Paul. Just like a few weeks ago, Barnabas was standing outside of the temple of Zeus, preaching to the Gentiles, watching as they're all coming to Christ, getting saved. And now here Barnabas is, and he's afraid to sit with the Gentiles because he's like, I don't know, I don't want these guys from Jerusalem judging me. So this is hugely important because anytime we add something to the gospel, and this anything, anytime we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. How are we saved? By grace, through faith in Christ. That's, that's how we're saved, through Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're saved by faith in Jesus. Anytime somebody says, yeah, absolutely, we're saved by faith in Jesus, plus circumcision, or plus, plus the law, or, or plus, plus baptism, or plus anything. Anytime we add a plus to that, we've, we've lost it entirely. And, and Paul says, you're losing the gospel. And so he stands up in front of the whole congregation and he rebukes Peter to his face. And you can, I bet he's also glaring at Barnabas too. He's like, you know better. Like, you know? That's the dissension. That's what's at stake. And the church realized, whoa, this is a very, very big deal. We gotta get to the bottom of this. And so what they did was they assembled a group and they said, we need to go right to the source. So we're gonna send a group right to Jerusalem and we're gonna find out who sent these guys and we, with whose authority are they speaking and what's actually, what's the verdict here? How do we navigate through this? So that brings us to the second part of our story and that is the deliberation. Look with me first at verses three to six. We read, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and they brought great joy to all the brothers When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. We're going to pause there. I want to draw out one important detail, though it's kind of secondary to what we're saying. So if you can imagine, we're going to take a bit of an aside I do want you to see something. When they assemble together, they don't just bring this question to the apostles. Look again at verse six. They bring it to the apostles and the elders. That's interesting and that's important. If you scroll down to verse 22, when they've made their decision, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. I want you just to notice this detail because it is really important. The apostles could have made this decision on their own. They had the authority to make this decision on their own. They didn't need to bring the elders into the discussion, nor did they need to have the church affirm the decision. The apostles could have spoken. And yet, they brought the elders into the mix. So the question is, why? Why would they do that? Why is Luke highlighting that in this passage? And the answer, I would argue, is that the apostles were wisely 
weaning the church off of a, a mindset that says we're going to go to them and they'll answer it for us. And what they were doing instead was they were enabling and empowering and instituting a way of, of discerning and finding a way forward that could be replicated in all of the churches, right? And that's, in fact, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. Remember, after, after his first missionary journey, what did he do? He went back and he appointed elders in every church, right? So this is the New Testament pattern. It's like, because you're going to have problems. You're going to have discussions. You're going to have things you need to work through. And you're going to need people who are discerning, people who can teach and can chart the way forward. And the apostles right here are enabling uh, these elders to do that in the church in Antioch. And that's important. It's particularly important today, I want to bring it to your attention, because uh, right after this service, we have our first nominating committee meeting. And a, a number of representatives from the congregation are going to go up, and we're going to pray, and we're going to be asking the Lord to identify future elders in this church. Because we need this. Every New Testament church needs elders who can lead the way forward and discern through these issues. And so if I can encourage you, be praying for that for us. Um, it, it, they needed it, and, and we need this. But now let's, we'll jump back into the discussion itself. And what we find in the discussion is that there are three speeches in this gathering. So you can imagine they get the church together like this. You're all here. You realize something's going on. We've got to figure this out. And so they have three speeches. The first is Peter. Uh, then Paul and Barnabas give a speech. But Luke doesn't really record their speech, probably because we've been following them for this whole thing, so we know what they would say. And then he concludes with a speech from James. So these three speeches. And in these three speeches, essentially he makes two points are made. So Peter, Paul, and Barnabas make one point. James makes another point. Let me just walk through those so that we can see them together. The first point that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas make is this. The conversion of the Gentiles has already been validated. I just realized. I should just clarify in case there's one person who doesn't know. What's a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. Does that make sense? So you've got this religion that was Judaism and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but now it's going out to the nations. And so how do we make sense of all these people who aren't Jewish coming to faith? Those are Gentiles, okay? And the conversion of the Gentiles, they argue, has already been validated. Look with me at verses seven to 12. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we'll stop there. So Peter, in his argument, he essentially kind of looked out at the congregation and he said, listen, I know you're struggling with this. I know you're wrestling through this. But I gotta tell you something. You may not like this, but, but God is doing this whether you like it or not. He has already given his verdict on this. And then he pointed back to a story from chapter 10, the, story, the conversion of Cornelius. Um, if you were with us, you've heard us preach on that. If not, you can go back and listen to that. But he points back at the story of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile man 
He was not circumcised. He did not observe the law of Moses. And yet, God led Peter to Cornelius, and he led Peter or Cornelius to Peter through dreams and visions. He brought them together, and God saved Cornelius and his household, apart from circumcision, apart from observing the law of Moses. And then, just in case people would have doubts about, was that real conversion? God recreated the Pentecost experience in Cornelius' household, fills the whole family with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And Peter comes back and he says, listen, and there were witnesses. Like, he says, God has done this whether you like it or not. Whether you would do it differently or not doesn't really matter because God's already validated what he's done with the Gentiles. And he sits down and the whole congregation is quiet. I, I assume they're silent because they're thinking that's a powerful argument. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they testify of the signs and wonders that God's been working. They tell them about this first missionary journey, how they've been ministering to the Gentiles, and how every time they come into a new community, God is working miracles and doing incredible, powerful things that, that can only be explained by God himself. And their point seems to be that God is validating this mission. If God didn't want the Gentiles coming in, then he wouldn't have worked these miracles, and he wouldn't have performed these signs. Right? God could have shut this down immediately. Instead, God is swinging the doors wide open. That's their point. The conversion of the Gentiles has already been validated. G. Campbell Morgan summarizes, and he says, here's the fact. God has already given the Gentile all grace without ceremony, ritual, rite, and observance. That's the fact. Here's the deduction. Do not be afraid to follow God even though he seems to be breaking through things dear to our heart, do not tempt God by refusing his guidance. That's the argument here. He's saying God's done it. You might have done it differently. Cool. But, but you're not God, and God did it this way, so we need to get on board lest we be found opposing him. Now, Peter's spoken. Paul and Barnabas have spoken. But there's one more to speak, and that's James. James is the brother of Jesus. James actually, he didn't believe in Jesus, he didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. But when his brother rose from the dead and fulfilled all the prophecies, even James said, I believe. And he came to become the most prominent voice in the Jerusalem church. In fact, he seems to be seen as kind of the voice of orthodoxy. Like everybody looked at James to see, you know, does James approve? Is James on board with this? In fact, in Galatians, when those Judaizers came in and were saying, you know, you need to observe the law, you need to be circumcised, they were saying that, hey, we speak on behalf of James back in Jerusalem. They just assumed, I don't think they were lying, I think they just assumed that James would agree with everything we're saying here, which is why the church in Antioch needed to go back to Jerusalem and talk to James and say, did you say this? So James stands up and he speaks, and he makes an argument that essentially says the conversion of the Gentiles was always assumed. So if Peter, Paul, and Barnabas were making their argument and saying, look, God is so obviously doing a new thing, James is, is speaking to this kind of conservative crowd and he's making the argument, and this new thing that God is doing was foretold long, long ago. If we look back to these old prophecies, we can see that God said this would happen. And he quotes from Amos chapter nine. Let me read now verses 13 to 18 where it says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is another name for Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James is quoting from Amos 9, and he's saying, brothers, sisters, this has always been the plan. I know you feel shell-shocked and you feel like this is, this is liberalism creeping into the church. You feel like, like this is, uh, we're just throwing off the, the law carelessly. He's saying that's not what's happening. This is God doing what he said he would do a long, long time ago and fulfilling ancient prophecies. He said that he was going to rebuild the tent of David and that's what's happening now in the New Testament church. Remember Jesus said that he's the cornerstone and that now the church is being built into this temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says to the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? So James is saying here, the, the tent of David is being rebuilt just like God said would happen and it's, it's us, it's this church. And as God is rebuilding and restructuring, he told us long ago that the Gentiles were gonna be a part of this plan. Remember? Then he quotes Amos 9. He's like, yeah, now you remember, right? So this isn't novelty. This isn't recklessness. This was God's plan. It's been assumed from the very beginning. One commentator summarizes, the point would seem to be that God is doing something new in raising up the church. It's an event of the last days. And therefore, the old rules of the Jewish religion no longer apply. God is making a people out of the nations. And nothing in the text suggests that they are to become Jews in order to become God's people. So James spoke, and that settled the matter. Even the dissenters, like everybody just said, okay, we're on board. But now a decision needs to be made because you've got churches, like all these Galatian churches, all these these churches from the first missionary journey, they're all wondering, like, are we saved or not? So they've got to communicate back the decision they've made. And that brings us to the third element, the decision. This is our longest reading. We're gonna read from verse 19 all the way to 29. We'll pick up at the end of James's speech. This is James speaking. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right. So they've made a decision, and there are two parts to the decision. So this is the last section of the story. We're going to bring this to a close. 
First of all, they had to deal with this question. Do you remember what the, the main question was? The objection? They had said, for these people to really be saved, if they're really going to come to Jesus, first they need to go through Moses. They need to become Jews in order to come to Jesus. And the Jerusalem Council very clearly declared, Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to come to Jesus. So that's, that's the most fundamental decision that they made, and it's changed the world. It's the reason why you and I are Christians today. We are very thankful for this, right? They said, we've got to keep the gospel clear. In verse 11, Peter said very clearly, you can look back, you can, this is the highlight, underline verse. Peter says, but we, he's speaking to these Jewish believers, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Like, that's how we got saved, just as they will. So how do people get saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter says, we can't lose that or we've lost everything. That is the gospel, right? That's how we came in, that's how they're gonna come in. Anyone who comes into this family is going to come through Christ alone, okay? That's the heart of it, that's the most important thing. We've talked about that a lot. But, but then they said more, and that's what makes this passage a bit complicated, because there's a second element to their decision. They wanted to guard against legalism, they wanted to guard against this distortion of the gospel that would keep people out, but they had another priority, which is to preserve the unity of this church, this church that had almost split into two. They need to, they need to think about how they can charitably live together as the people of God. And so the second element of their decision, we could say, is this. Gentiles should abstain from practices that would needlessly offend. That's, if we could summarize the four things they lay out, that's really what they're after. So four, four prohibitions. He says, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Abstain from blood. Abstain from what has been strangled. When you strangle an animal, what happens to the blood? It stays in the animal. There was a ritual way of killing an animal, which is just, we're not gonna go all there, but that's the idea, right? That's, these are kind of two two sides of the same coin, and abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've read through the book of Acts. I assume you've read, you've read this passage. I wonder if you've ever stopped to ask the question, why these four abstentions? Like, of all the things that these believers could have said to their Gentile believers, why did they go here? If the goal was simply to, to help people to be moral, like if they thought, we just, let's give them like a kind of a basic moral foundation. Couldn't they have just said, tell you what, you know, we come, to, we come through grace alone, or faith alone and Christ alone, grace alone. I just messed all that up. You know how we get here through Jesus. But that doesn't mean live lawlessly. So here are the Ten Commandments. Keep these. That would have been easy. Or maybe you're like, well, yeah, but the word count wouldn't allow it. Well, then couldn't they have just said what Jesus said? Because remember, Jesus summarized it quite succinctly. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Why didn't they just, why didn't they say that? We enter through Jesus, but do these two things, that captures the whole heart of it. If their goal was just to help this, these people to live morally, that's what they would have said. But that's not what they said. Instead, they gave these four seemingly obscure instructions. And if you've never asked why that is, then I, I would argue now is a good time to ask. Like, why, why these four instructions? Now, the sexual immorality, even without you know, thinking about the context, that makes sense to us, right? You shouldn't live that way. Um, 
Now, in that context, part of the reason why he highlighted sexual morality was because that was a part of cult worship. So a lot of these people, these Gentiles who were saved, they're living in cities where, where sexual immorality was a part of worshiping the pagan gods. And so he's like, he's like, you're not living in that world anymore, right? That's behind you, so abstain from that. And then, you know, eating food sacrificed to idols, again, we can kind of make sense of that. At the time, you know, they would make sacrifices to these false gods, and then the, that meat would be in the market, and you could eat that meat. And, and later Paul says, actually, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. If your conscience is clear, it's just meat. Those gods are nothing. But here they say, you know what? Just avoid that meat. The church is about to split in two. Get meat from somewhere else or eat the grain, you know? And, but then they say, and don't eat the blood. Don't eat from these animals who were killed by strangling. And that seems to fly in the face of what Jesus said when Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but what comes out. In Mark's gospel, it says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus said all foods are clean, and in this decision they say, hey, stay away from these foods. What's happening here? Well, what's happening here is that they recognize that the church right now is made of these, these devout Jews who have come to Christ, and these Gentiles who know nothing about Judaism, they've come to Christ, and they said, so we, we want to make sure that the devout Jews don't put regulations on these incoming believers that are going to keep them out. We've got to make sure they don't put barriers there that don't belong, so they, that's their first ruling. But then they say, but we've got to make sure these incoming Gentiles are considerate of their brothers and sisters who are in the faith. If they come to the potluck with, with blood pudding, even though there's nothing morally wrong with that blood pudding now in this new covenant, they're going to offend everybody, all of these former Jews. They're going to, it's going to be a disaster. It's going, to, it's going to cause a split in the church. So he addresses them and he says, hey, you need to be considerate. You need to be considerate. And here are just four ways, four obvious ways that you can be very considerate of your Jewish brothers and sisters. And then they sent this letter off. We read in verses uh, 30 to 35 as we come to a close of the passage. It says this. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of this encouragement. Pause. They rejoiced because the letter said, you're actually Christians. This was really good news. I mean, we lose this living as we do now. But for these Gentiles, they're wondering like, do I need to, be circumcised? Do I need to change my diet? Do, what's the, no. So they rejoice because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we end where we began. It, this started with a, a joyful report in Antioch about what God was doing with the Gentiles. And now it ends with that same joyful report that the Gentiles are, in fact, a part of the family of God, only now they're able to rejoice with greater clarity and with greater unity. Because God, not only does God want us to get to where we need to be, but he wants us to get there together. That matters to him, and we learn that here. So we're done the passage and before we close, I do want to draw three implications to show how this applies to us today. And if you're one of those people who's kind of looking at the watch, I know that we're late in the sermon. These are going to be three quick applications, but I don't think we've really dealt with this passage fairly unless we've thought about how this applies to us today. The Jew-Gentile relationship, that doesn't, I mean, the, the obvious implication is that we're here today, we're Christians today because of this decision. But there's more here for us to unpack. So first of all, I want to just draw this out for us to see. Let us, 
as the people of God, resolve never to add extra requirements to the gospel. That seems like an, an obvious implication here. I quoted G. Campbell Morgan earlier. I wanna, I'm gonna quote him again. I think he gets to the heart of what's happening in this passage and to the heart of what often happens in us. He says, here's the fact. God has already given the Gentile or the whoever has come to salvation through Christ, he's given them all grace without ceremony, ritual, rite, and observance. Here's the deduction. Do not be afraid to follow God, even though he seems to be breaking through things dear to our heart. Do not tempt God by refusing his guidance. Man, that is, that is wildly helpful, and I hope that we'll all hold on to this. One of the things that I want to make sure you see in this passage is that the Pharisees, like the former Pharisees, the ones who stirred up this dissension, they were real Christians. Sometimes we read this story as if like, oh, those were a bunch of heretics came busting in. Nope. They were believers, the text says in, in verse five. Believers who were, who were former Pharisees, so they brought some stuff with them into their conversion, but these are the real deal Christians. The implication is this. Real believers are capable of making a real mess even when they're doing it with real good intentions, which these men were. They, they thought that they were the champions of the truth. They thought that the church was, was losing sight, was going off the rails into chaos, and they were like, we need to bring back the order and the structure, the stuff that we know from our childhood. We need to bring that back into the church. We need to get it back into alignment. And they were doing that from a place of real love for Jesus. And if we don't see that, then I don't think we understand the depth and complexity of this passage. And we won't understand the depth and complexity of this congregation because we've all got a bit of that Pharisee thing in us. Sometimes, you know, when we talk about the disputes and the barriers and the obstacles and the disagreements that we face, we wind up talking past each other because we misrepresent each other. So, for example, younger generation, when we think about the music wars of the past, sometimes we talk as if, you know, our grandparents fought about the music because they hated the young people. That is not why our grandparents fought about the music. They fought about the music because they loved Jesus and because they had grown up with particular instruments and a particular style of music and they had come to believe that this is the way that we appropriately worship God. And these new instruments are not pleasing to him. And they earnestly believed that. That was a real conviction that they had. That's why the, that's why the battle happened. The, the person who, who, who rebuked you for wearing a hat at church it's not because they don't like you. It's because they grew up in a culture that said that to wear a hat somewhere is a sign of disrespect. And so if you're wearing a hat, it must mean that you don't respect me and you certainly don't respect King Jesus. That's why they had that talk with you. The person who glared at you when you got up in the middle of the service to walk out and get a drink or to walk out for a smoke break or whatever it was. The person who, who gave you a hard time because you weren't behaving the way that they thought that you should behave in the service. They're not just, they're not a bully. They just really, really love Jesus and they're really convinced that the way that they've grown up is the way that we ought to worship Jesus. So I want us to see that real Christians do that. But now I want to speak to those of us who do that and I want to say real Christians shouldn't do that. That's what we see here. Real Christians shouldn't. We, we have to be vigilant not to impose our cultural convictions are the way that we've brought up to impose that on others and to put that as a barrier between them and Jesus. Because we understand, like, right, we can see how that's a problem. 
that Jesus is the way of salvation, not a dress code. Jesus is the way of salvation, not, not the music that we sing, not the instruments that we utilize on a Sunday morning. Jesus is the way of salvation. And so if we're gonna take these other things that we really love and make these as barriers or hoops that people need to jump through in order to get to Jesus, then we are the Pharisees from Acts 15. Even though we're real believers who really love Jesus with really good motives, we're putting real obstacles between people and Jesus, and we can't do that. So let us resolve as a church not to do that. Let's swing that door as wide as it can go, faithfully speaking. Now, there are barriers, right? Jesus said, I'm the stone of stumbling. I'm the rock of offense. Jesus tells people, you, if you're going to come, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. You've got to lay down your sin and follow me. There are enough barriers between people and Jesus that he put there. We don't need to add, and you've got to wear a jacket. That is not our place. So very practically speaking, if you find yourself one day and you're sitting with somebody and they come in 15 minutes late and they're wearing a backwards ball cap and they get up twice during the service to go, oh, you okay? They go out twice during the service to take a smoke break and then you talk to them after the service and they use a number of choice four-letter words in their talk with you that make you very uncomfortable. Well, how do you react in such a case? You thank God that they are here to learn about Jesus, right? And you, and you pray for them and you encourage them that's, that's how we respond. You don't say, tell you what, you come back here again when you've, when you've got yourself ready to jump through my hoops and then we'll talk about Jesus. That's, that's not what we do. They don't need to look like us before they can come to him. That's what we're learning here. Second, so if some of you are hearing that and you're like, yeah, amen. Okay, second, other side of that coin, let us be considerate of the consciences of our brothers and sisters. Because remember the Jerusalem council? They made two decisions. They said, hey, quit it. They don't need to be like you to come to Jesus. But then they said, and hey, you, you need to recognize that these folks have got some real deep convictions and you need to be courteous to those convictions. And so, do you, does it matter what you wear to church to an extent? No. No, you're gonna wear shorts to church? That's fine. You're gonna wear a hat to church? That, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't. And if somebody says, yes, there is, I will talk to them for you. But, but, if you find out that wearing your ball cap is, is making this dear older brother next to you feel really discouraged, and it's making him think that you don't respect the Lord, you don't respect this place, if you, if you know that, then why not just run a comb through your hair? I, and I mean, like really, if, if you know that, showing up to church late, is that, if you show up to church late, is, is Jesus in heaven just like wagging his finger at you? No, no. But if, if you know that when you show up to church 15 minutes late, the sister who sits behind you is, is wildly distracted and it's unhelpful for her, then couldn't you just set your alarm 10 minutes earlier? Like, there are so many of these small little adjustments that we could make out of love for one another. And that seems to be what's being pointed to in this passage. Be considerate. Be considerate of one another. Isn't that what Jesus would have us do? I could tell you, Jesus would not have us make a point and say, well, if you don't like when I wear a hat, next week I'm gonna put two hats on my head. You know, that'll teach you. You don't need to do that. And that actually brings us to our third point and our final point. Trust in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Let God do that work in a person's heart. I think this is really the root of the issue. The Pharisees, they wanted to build all these fences, right? Because the church is gonna spiral into chaos if we get rid of these fences. These fences are gonna keep us in order. They're gonna keep us in line. And I'll tell you, we do the same thing. On both sides of the spectrum, 
we forget that it's the Holy Spirit that changes people. That's the difference in the new covenant. Like everything has changed now, right? We come, we come to God through Christ and, and real Christians receive a new heart. That was, that was promised in the new covenant. We now have a new heart that wants new things and it wants new things because we've also received the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God says, I've sent the spirit of my son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6, I believe. So we have the Holy Spirit in us, changing what we want from the inside out, from one degree of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3.16. So he's changing people, which means that you don't have to change people. He softens the heart of the legalistic Christian. You don't need to wear the hat to put them in place. He's gonna work in the heart of the legalistic Christian, and he also matures the young and the careless Christian. He does that. He changes us, which is great news, because that means that you can actually take a breath. You don't have to fix everybody. Praise God for all of these people, even in this small room, who love Jesus and yet look nothing like you and, and live nothing like you and don't have your background and don't have your experiences. Praise God. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They've entered through the same door that you entered through. That is faith in Jesus. You don't have to change them. The Spirit does that. So what are you responsible to do then? You are responsible to learn how to worship in unity with them. And as we see, that can be wildly complicated. So to that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. Oh God, we love you. And uh, Lord, as I preach this, Lord, help me to trust that the Holy Spirit changes people because Lord, I, I see the ditches on either side. Lord, I see the, I see the ditch of legalism and I know that some people might, might take what we've heard today and they might take that as a license to, to look at others who aren't being considered enough and might want to impose that on them. Lord, and I know that there's the ditch of lawlessness on the other side and Lord, I'm mindful that someone might take what we've said today and, and just say, well, see, I'm just going to live however I want. I don't need any of that. Lord, and yet, we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells the people of God and those who have put their trust in Jesus are actually being changed. Lord, help us, to, help us to trust that. Help us to trust your slow, faithful work. Lord, help us to be humble enough to remember that one of the people who are slowly changing is me. Um, Lord, that as we see the things in others that we wish would change, God, there's a lot of stuff that they're seeing in us that needs to change. And praise God, you're bringing about that change. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, as you reveal things to us. Lord, maybe today someone has just, something's been exposed. I pray that we would be faithful to confess our sin, Lord, and to lay it down. Lord, I pray that we would become a people who, um, Lord, who are just, who are celebrating new life in Christ. Lord, and trusting you even when it becomes complicated. I cannot think of a church that would have been more complicated than that church in Antioch. Um, Lord, I can't even imagine what they were going through. These were real issues, and yet you were really working in it. Um, Lord, I'm thankful that they were enabled to see that. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to see it on the days when we find ourselves similarly wrestling and struggling and trying to stay together. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you prayed for the unity of the church. You prayed for this. And so we trust that you will, you will hold us together even in the days when it feels like we're fracturing and rupturing apart. So Lord, help us now as we respond to you in praise. Help us now as we go out and we live for you. Oh God, we can't do anything in our own strength, but we don't have to because your spirit dwells in us. So change this, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?